Thank you for listening to this free audiobook created by Project Gutenberg and Microsoft AI. To learn more about the project or give feedback on the quality of a recording, please visit aka.ms/audiobook. Narrative and Legendary Poems by John Greenleaf Whittier The Wishing Bridge How the Women Went from Dover S.D. Gregory's Guest Contents Birchbrook Mill The Two Elizabeths Requital The Homestead How the Robin Cain Banished from Massachusetts The Brown Dwarf of Ruggin The Bay of Seven Islands The volume in which The Bay of Seven Islands was published was dedicated to the late Edwin Percy Whipple to whom more than to any other person I was indebted for public recognition as one worthy of a place in American literature, at a time when it required a great degree of courage to urge such a claim for a proscribed abolitionist. Although younger than I, he had gained the reputation of a brilliant essayist, and was regarded as the highest American authority in criticism. His wit and wisdom enlivened a small literary circle of young men including Thomas Starr King, the eloquent preacher, and Daniel N. Haskell of the Daily Transcript, who gathered about our common friend Dames T. Fields at the Old Corner Bookstore. The poem which gave title to the volume I inscribed to my friend and neighbor Harriet Prescott Spofford, whose poems have lent a new interest to our beautiful river valley. From the green Amesbury Hill which bears the name of that half-mythic ancestor of mine who trod its slopes two hundred years ago, down the long valley of the Merrimack, midway between me and the river's mouth, I see thy home set like an eagle's nest among dear island's immemorial pines, crowning the crag on which the sunset breaks its last red arrow. Many a tale and song, which thou bast told or sung, I call to mind, softening with silvery mist the woods and hills, the outthrust headlands and in-reaching bays of our northeastern coastline, trending where the gulf, midsummer, feels the chill blockade of icebergs stranded at its northern gate. To thee the echoes of the island sound answer not vainly, nor in vain the moan of the south breaker prophesying storm. And thou hast listened, like myself, to men's sea periled oft where Anticosti lies like a fell spider in its web of fog, or where the grand bank shallows with the wrecks of sunken fissures, and to whom strange isles and frost-rimmed bays and trading stations seem familiar as Great Neck and Kettle Cove, Nubble and Boon, the common names of home. So let me offer thee this lay of mine, simple and homely, lacking much thy play of color, and a fancy. If its theme and treatment seem to thee befitting youth rather than age, let this be my excuse it has beguiled some heavy hours and called some pleasant memories up. And better still, occasion lent me for a kindly word to one who is my neighbor and my friend. 1883. The skipper sailed out of the harbor mouth, leaving the apple bloom of the south for the ice of the eastern seas, in his fishing schooner breeze. Handsome and brave and young was he, and the maids of Newbury sighed to see his lessening white sail fall under the sea's blue wall. Through the northern gulf and the misty screen of the isles of Mingan and Madeline, S.T. Pauls and Blanc Sablin, the little breeze sailed on. Backward and forward, along the shore of lorn and desolate Labrador, and found at last her way to the Seven Islands Bay. The little hamlet, nestling below great hills white with lingering snow, with its tin-roofed chapel stood half-hid in the dwarf spruce wood. Green-turfed, flower-sown, the last outpost of summer upon the dreary coast, with its gardens small and spare, sat in the frosty air. Hard by where the skipper's schooner lay, a fisherman's cottage looked away over island bay, and behind on mountains dim defined. And their twin sisters, fair and young, laughed with their stranger guests, 
and sung in their native tongue the lays of the old Provencal days. Alike were they, save the faint outline of a scar on Suzette's forehead fine, and both, it so befell, loved the heretic stranger well. Both were pleasant to look upon, but the heart of the skipper clave to one, though less by his eye than heart he knew the twain apart. Despite of alien race and creed, well did his wooing of Marguerite's speed, and the mother's wrath was vain as the sister's jealous pain. The shrill-tongued mistress her house forbade, and solemn warning was sternly said by the black-robed priest, whose word as law the hamlet heard. But half by voice and half by signs the skipper said, A warm sun shines on the green-banked Merrimack. Wait, watch, till I come back. And when you see, from my masthead, the signal fly of a kerchief red, my boat on the shore shall wait. Come, when the night is late. Ah, weighed with childhood's haunts and friends, and all that the home sky overbends, did every young love fail to turn the trembling scale? Under the night, on the wet sea sands, slowly unclasped their plighted hands one to the cottage hearth, and one to his sailor's berth. What was it the parting lovers heard? Nor leaf, nor ripple, nor wing of bird, but a listener's stealthy tread on the rock moss, crisp and dead. He weighed his anchor, and fished once more by the black coastline of Labrador, and by love and the north wind driven, sailed back to the island's seven. In the sunset's glow the sisters twain saw the breeze come sailing in again, said Suzette. Mother dear, the heretic sail is here. Go, Marguerite, to your room, and hide. Your door shall be bolted. The mother cried, while Suzette, ill at ease, watched the red sign of the breeze. At midnight down to the waiting skiff she stole in the shadow of the cliff, and out of the bay's mouth ran the schooner with maid and man. And all night long on a restless bed, her prayers to the Virgin Marguerite said and thought of her lover's pain waiting for her in vain. Did he pace the sands? Did he pause to hear the sound of her light step drawing near? And as the slow hours passed, would he doubt her faith at last? But when she saw through the misty pane, the morning break on a sea of rain, could even her love avail to follow his vanished sail? Meantime the breeze, with favoring wind, left the rugged Mwasik hills behind, and heard from an unseen shore the falls of Manitou roar. On the morrow's morn, in the thick, gray weather they sat on the reeling deck together, lover and counterfeit, of hapless Marguerite. With a lover's hand, from her forehead fair he smoothed away her jet-black hair. What was it his fond eyes met? The scar of the false Suzette. Fiercely he shouted, Bear away east by north for Seven Isles Bay. The maiden wept and prayed, but the ship her helm obeyed. Once more the Bay of the Isles they found they heard the bell of the chapel sound, and the chant of the dying sung in the harsh, wild Indian tongue. A feeling of mystery, change, and all was in all they heard and all they saw spellbound the hamlet lay in the hush of its lonely bay. And when they came to the cottage door, the mother rose up from her weeping sore, and with angry gestures met the scared look of Suzette. Here is your daughter, the skipper said. Give me the one I love instead. But the woman sternly spake. Go see if the dead will wake. He looked. Her sweet face still and white and strange in the noonday taper light, she lay on her little bed, with the cross at her feet and head. In a passion of grief the strong man bent down to her face, and kissing it, went back to the waiting breeze, back to the mournful seas. Never again to the Merrimack and Newberry's homes that bark came back. Whether her fate she met on the shores of Caraquet, Miscu or Tracady, 
who can say? But even yet at Seven Isles Bay is told the ghostly tale of a weird, unspoken sail. In the pale, sad light of the northern day seen by the blanketed Montagna, or squall, in her small kayak, crossing the specter's track. On the deck a maiden wrings her hands, her likeness kneels on the gray coast sands, one in her wild despair, and one in the trance of prayer. She flits before no earthly blast, the red sign fluttering from her mast, over the solemn seas, the ghost of the schooner breeze. 1882. The Wishing Bridge. Among the legends sung or said along our rocky shore, the wishing bridge of Marblehead may well be sung once more. An hundred years ago, so ran the old-time story, all good wishes said above its span would, soon or late, befall. If pure and earnest, never failed the prayers of man or made for him who on the deep sea sailed, for her at home who stayed. Once thither came two girls from school, and wished in childish glee and one would be a queen and rule, and one the world would see. Time passed, with change of hopes and fears, and in the selfsame place two women, gray with middle years, stood, wondering, face to face. With wakened memories, as they met, they queried what had been. A poor man's wife am I, and yet, said one, I am a queen. My realm a little homestead is, where, lacking crown and throne, I rule by loving services and patient toil alone. The other said, The great world lies beyond me as it lay, o'er loves and duties boundaries my feet may never stray. I see but common sights of home, its common sounds I hear, my widowed mother's sick bedroom sufficeth for my sphere. I read to her some pleasant page of travel far and wide, and in a dreamy pilgrimage we wander side by side. And when, at last, she falls asleep, my book becomes to me a magic glass, my watch I keep, but all the world I see. A farm wife queen your place you fill, while fancy's privilege is mine to walk the earth at will, thanks to the wishing bridge. Nay, leave the legend for the truth, the other cried, and say God gives the wishes of our youth, but in his own best way. 1882. How the women went from Dover. The following is a copy of the warrant issued by Major Waldron, of Dover, in 1662. The Quakers, as was their wont, prophesied against him, and saw, as they supposed, the fulfillment of their prophecy when, many years after, he was killed by the Indians. To the constables of Dover, Hampton, Salisbury, Newbury, Raleigh, Ipswich, Wenham, Lynn, Boston, Roxbury, Dedham, and until these vagabond Quakers are carried out of this jurisdiction. You, and every one of you, are required, in the King's Majesty's name, to take these vagabond Quakers, and Coleman, Mary Tompkins, and Alice Ambrose, and make them fast to the cart's tail, and driving the cart through your several towns, to whip them upon their naked backs not exceeding ten stripes apiece on each of them, in each town, and so to convey them from constable to constable till they are out of this jurisdiction. As you will answer it at your peril, and this shall be your warrant. Richard Waldron. Dated at Dover, December 22, 1662. This warrant was executed only in Dover and Hampton. At Salisbury the constable refused to obey it. He was sustained by the townspeople, who were under the influence of Major Robert Pike, the leading man in the lower valley of the Merrimack, who stood far in advance of his time, as an advocate of religious freedom, and an opponent of ecclesiastical authority. He had the moral courage to address an able and manly letter to the court at Salem, remonstrating against the witchcraft trials. 
the tossing spray of Cachecos fall hardened to ice on its rocky wall, as through Dover town in the chill, gray dawn, three women passed, at the cart tail drawn, bared to the waist, for the north wind's grip and keener sting of the constable's whip, the blood that followed each hissing blow froze as it sprinkled the winter snow. Priest and ruler, boy and maid followed the dismal cavalcade, and from door and window, open throne, looked and wondered gaffer and crone. God is our witness. The victims cried, We suffer for him who for all men died. The wrong ye do has been done before, we bear the stripes that the master bore. And now, O Richard Waldron, for whom we hear the feet of a coming doom, on thy cruel heart, and thy hand of wrong vengeance is sure, though it tarry long. In the light of the Lord a flame we see climb and kindle a proud roof-tree, and beneath it an old man lying dead, with stains of blood on his hoary head. Smite, goodman hate evil, harder still, the magistrate cried. Lay on with a will. Drive out of their bodies the father of lies, who through them preaches and prophesies. So into the forest they held their way, by winding river and frost-rimmed bay over wind-swept hills that felt the beat of the winter sea at their icy feet. The Indian hunter, searching his traps, peered stealthily through the forest gaps, and the outlying settler shook his head. The witch is going to jail, he said. At last a meeting-house came in view. A blast on his horn the constable blew, and the boys of Hampton cried up and down. The Quakers have come, to the wondering town. From barn and woodpile the goodman came. The good wife quitted her quilting frame, with her child at her breast, and hobbling slow, the grandam followed to see the show. Once more the torturing whip was swung, once more keen lashes the bare flesh stung. Oh, spare! They are bleeding! A little maid cried, and covered her face the sight to hide. A murmur ran round the crowd. Good folks, quoth the constable, busy counting the strokes. No pity to wretches like these is due. They have beaten the gospel black and blue. Then a pallid woman, in wild-eyed fear, with her wooden noggin of milk drew near. Drink, poor hearts! A rude hand smote her draft away from a parching throat. Take heed, one whispered. They'll take your cow for fines, as they took your horse and plow, and the bed from under you. Even so, she said. They are cruel as death, I know. Then on they passed, in the waning day, through Seabrook Woods, a weariful way, by great salt meadows and sand hills bare, and glimpses of blue sea here and there. By the meeting house in Salisbury Town, the sufferer stood, in the red sundown, bare for the latch. O pitying night, drop swift thy curtain and hide the sight. With shame in his eye and wrath on his lip the Salisbury constable dropped his whip. This warrant means murder foul and red, cursed is he who serves it, he said. Show me the order, and meanwhile strike a blow at your peril, said Justice Pike. Of all the rulers the land possessed, wisest and boldest was he and best. He scoffed at witchcraft. The priest he met as man meets man, his feet he set beyond his dark age, standing upright, soul-free, with his face to the morning light. He read the warrant. These convey from our precincts. At every town on the way give each ten lashes. God judge the brute. I tread his order under my foot. Cut loose these poor ones and let them go. Come what will of it. All men shall know no warrant is good, though backed by the crown, for whipping women in Salisbury town. The hearts of the villagers, half released from creed of terror and rule of priests, 
by a primal instinct owned the right of human pity in law's despite. For Ruth and chivalry only slept, his Saxon manhood the yeoman kept. Quicker or slower, the same blood ran in the cavalier and the Puritan. The Quakers sank on their knees in praise and thanks. A last low sunset blaze flashed out from under a cloud, and shed a golden glory on each bowed head. The tale is one of an evil time, when souls were fettered and thought was crime, and heresy's whisper above its breath meant shameful scourging and bonds and death. What marvel, that hunted and sorely tried, even woman rebuked and prophesied, and soft words rarely answered back the grim persuasion of whip and rack. If her cry from the whipping post in jail pierced sharp as the keen-eyed's driven nail, O woman, at ease in these happier days, forbear to judge of thy sister's ways. How much thy beautiful life may owe to her faith and courage thou canst not know, nor how from the paths of thy calm retreat she smoothed the thorns with her bleeding feet. 1883. St. Gregory's Guest. A tale for Roman guides to tell to careless, sight-worn travelers still, who paused beside the narrow cell of Gregory on the Celian Hill. One day before the monk's door came a beggar, stretching empty palms, fainting and fast sick, in the name of the most holy asking alms. And the monk answered, All I have in this poor cell of mine I give, the silver cup my mother gave, in Christ's name take thou it, and live. Years passed, and called at last to bear the pastoral crook and keys of Rome, the poor monk, in St. Peter's chair, sat the crown lord of Christendom. Prepare a feast, St. Gregory cried, and let twelve beggars sit thereat. The beggars came, and one beside, an unknown stranger, with them sat. I ask thee not, the pontiff spake, O stranger, but if need be thine, I bid thee welcome, for the sake of him who is thy lord and mine. A grave, calm face the stranger raised, like his who on Genesaret trod, or his on whom the Chaldeans gazed, whose form was as the Son of God. Knowst thou, he said, thy gift of old? And in the hand he lifted up the pontiff marveled to behold once more his mother's silver cup. Thy prayers and alms have risen, and bloomed sweetly among the flowers of heaven. I am the wonderful, through whom whatever thou askest shall be given. He spake and vanished. Gregory fell with his twelve guests in mute accord prone on their faces knowing well their eyes of flesh had seen the Lord. The old-time legend is not vain, nor vain thy art, Verona's Paul, telling it o'er and o'er again on gravy Vicenza's frescoed wall. Still wheresoever pity shares its bread with sorrow, want, and sin, and love the beggar's feast prepares, the uninvited guest comes in. Unheard, because our ears are dull, unseen, because our eyes are dim, he walks our earth, the wonderful, and all good deeds are done to him. 1883. Birchbrook Mill. A noteless stream, the Birchbrook runs beneath its leaning trees. That low, soft ripple is its own, that dull roar is the sea's. Of human signs it sees alone the distant church spire's tip, and ghost-like, on a blank of gray, the white sail of a ship. No more a twaller at the wheel, it wanders at its will. Nor dam nor pond is left to tell where once was Birchbrook Mill. The timbers of that mill have fed long since a farmer's fires. His doorsteps are the stones that ground the harvest of his sires. Man trespass here, but nature lost no right of her domain. She waited, and she brought the old wild beauty back again. By day the sunlight through the leaves falls on its moist, green sod, and wakes the violet bloom of spring and autumn's golden rod. Its birches whisper to the wind, 
The swallow dips her wings in the cool spray, and on its banks the gray song sparrow sings. But from it, when the dark night falls, the schoolgirl shrinks with dread. The farmer, homebound from his fields, goes by with quickened tread. They dare not pause to hear the grind of shadowy stone on stone, the plashing of a waterwheel where will there now is none. Has not a cry of pain been heard above the clattering mill? The pawing of an unseen horse, who waits his mistress still. Yet never to the listener's eye has sight confirmed the sound. A wavering birch line marks alone the vacant pasture ground. No ghostly arms fling up to heaven the agony of prayer. No spectral steed impatient shakes his white mane on the air. The meaning of that common dread no tongue has fitly told. The secret of the dark surmise the brook and birches hold. What nameless horror of the past broods here forevermore. What ghost is unforgiven sin is grinding o'er and o'er. Does, then, immortal memory play the actor's tragic part, rehearsals of a mortal life and unveiled human heart? God's pity spare a guilty soul that drama of its ill, and let the scenic curtain fall on Birchbrook's haunted mill 1884. The Two Elizabeths Read at the unveiling of the bust of Elizabeth Fry at the Friends School, Providence, R. I. A. Died in 1209. Amidst Thuringia's wooded hills she dwelt, a high-born princess, servant of the poor, sweetening with gracious words the food she dealt to starving throngs at Warbig's blazoned door. A blinded zealot held her soul in chains, cramped the sweet nature that he could not kill, scarred her fair body with his penance pains, and gauged her conscience by his narrow will. God gave her gifts of beauty and of grace, with fast and vigil she denied them all, unquestioning, with sad, pathetic face, she followed meekly at her stern guide's call. So drooped and dyed her home-blown rose of bliss in the chill rigor of a discipline that turned her fond lips from her children's kiss, and made her joy of motherhood a sin. To their sad level by compassion led, one with the low and vile herself she made, while thankless misery mocked the hand that fed, and laughed to scorn her piteous masquerade. But still, with patience that outwearied hate, she gave her all while yet she had to give, and then her empty hands, importunate, in prayer she lifted that the poor might live. Sore pressed by grief, and wrongs more hard to bear, and dwarfed, and stifled by a harsh control, she kept life fragrant with good deeds and prayer, and fresh and pure the white flower of her soul. Death found her busy at her task, one word alone she uttered as she paused to die. Silence! Then listen even as one who heard with song and winged the angels drawing nigh. Now Fra Angelico's roses fill her hands, and on Marillo's canvas, want and pain kneel at her feet. Her marble image stands worshipped and crowned in Marburg's holy fane. Yea, whereso her church its cross uprears, wide as the world her story still is told, in manhood's reverence, woman's prayers and tears, she lives again whose grave is centuries old. And still, Despite the weakness or the blame of blind submission to the blind, she hath a tender place in hearts of every name, and more than Rome owns St. Elizabeth. A. Died in 1780. Slow ages passed, and lo! Another came, an English matron, in whose simple faith nor priestly rule nor ritual had claim, a plain, uncanonized Elizabeth. No sackcloth robe, nor ashen-sprinkled hair, nor wasting fast, nor scourge, nor vigil long, marred her calm presence. God had made her fair, and she could do his goodly work no wrong. Their yoke is easy and their burden light whose sole confessor is the Christ of God. 
her quiet trust and faith transcending sight smoothed to her feet the difficult paths she trod. And there she walked, as duty bade her go, safe and unsullied as a cloistered nun, shamed with her plainness fashion's gaudy show, and overcame the world she did not shun. In Earlham's bowers, in Plashet's liberal hall, in the great city's restless crowd and din, her ear was open to the master's call, and knew the summons of his voice within. Tender as mother, beautiful as wife, amidst the throngs of prison crime she stood in modest raiment faultless as her life, the type of England's worthiest womanhood. To melt the hearts that harshness turned to stone the sweet persuasion of her lips sufficed, and guilt, which only hate and fear had known, saw in her own the pitying love of Christ. So where soared the guiding spirit when she followed, finding every prison cell it opened for her sacred as a tent pitched by Genesaret, or by Jacob's well. And pride and fashion felt her strong appeal, and priest and ruler marveled as they saw how hand in hand went wisdom with her zeal, and woman's pity kept the bounds of law. She rests in God's peace, but her memory stirs the air of earth as with an angel's wings, and warms and moves the hearts of men like hers, the sainted daughter of Hungarian kings. United now, the Briton and the Hun, each, in her own time, faithful unto death, live sister souls. In name and spirit one, Thuringia's saint and our Elizabeth. 1885. Requital. As Islam's prophet, when his last day drew nigh to its close, besought all men to say whom he had wronged, to whom he then should pay a debt forgotten, or for pardon sue, and through the silence of his weeping friends, a strange voice cried, Thou owest me a debt, Allah be praised, he answered. Even yet he gives me power to make to the immense. O friend, I thank thee for thy timely word, so runs the tale. Its lesson all may heed, for all have sinned in thought, or word, or deed, or, like the prophet, through neglect have erred. All need forgiveness, all have debts to pay ere the night cometh, while it still is day. 1885. The Homestead. Against the wooded hills it stands, ghost of a dead home, staring through its broken lights on wasted lands where old-time harvests grew. Unpluffed, unsown, by scythe unshorn, the poor, forsaken farm fields lie, once rich and rife with golden corn and pale green breadths of rye. Of healthful herb and flower bereft, the garden plot no housewife keeps, through weeds and tangle only left, the snake, its tenant creeps. A lilac spray, still blossom-clad, sways slow before the empty rooms, beside the roofless porch a sad pathetic red rose blooms. His track, in mold and dust of drouth, on floor and hearth the squirrel leaves, and in the fireless chimney's mouth his web the spider weaves. The leaning barn, about to fall, resounds no more on husking eaves, no cattle low in yard or stall, no thresher beats his sheaves. So sad, so drear. It seems almost some haunting presence makes its sign, that down yon shadowy lane some ghost might drive his spectral kind. O home so desolate and lorn! Did all thy memories die with thee? Were any wed, were any born, beneath this low roof tree? Whose axe the wall of forest broke, and let the waiting sunshine through? What good wife sent the earliest smoke up the great chimney flue? Did rustic lovers hither come? Did maidens, swaying back and forth in rhythmic grace, at will and loom, make light their toil with mirth? Did child feet patter on the stair? Did boyhood frolic in the snow? Did gray age in her elbow chair knit, rocking to and fro? The murmuring brook, 
The sighing breeze, the pine's slow whisper, cannot tell. Low mounds beneath the hemlock trees keep the home secrets well. Cease, motherland, to fondly boast of sons far off who strive and thrive, forgetful that each swarming host must leave an emptier hive. O wanderers from ancestral soil, leave noisome mill and chaffering store, gird up your loins for sturdier toil, and build the home once more. Come back to bayberry-scented slopes, and fragrant fern, and groundnut vine. Breathe airs blown over holt, and copse sweet with black birch and pine. What matter if the gains are small that life's essential wants supply? Your homestead's title gives you all that idle wealth can buy. All that the many-dollared crave, the brick-walled slaves of change and mart. Lawns, trees, fresh air, and flowers you have, more dear for lack of art. Your own soul masters, freedom-willed, with none to bid you go or stay, till the old fields your fathers tilled, as manly men as they. With skill that spares your toiling hands, and chemic aid that science brings, reclaim the waste and outworn lands, and reign thereon as kings 1886. How the Robin Came An Algonquin Legend Happy young friends sit by me, under May's blown apple tree, while these home birds in and out through the blossoms flit about. Hear a story, strange and old, by the wild red Indians told, how the robin came to be. Once a great chief left his son, well-beloved, his only one, when the boy was well-nigh grown, in the trial lodge alone. Left for tortures long and slow use like him must undergo, who their pride of manhood test, lacking water, food, and rest. Seven days the fast he kept, seven nights he never slept. Then the young boy, wrung with pain, weak from nature's overstrain, faltering, moaned a low complaint. Spare me, father, for I faint. But the chieftain, haughty-eyed, hid his pity in his pride. You shall be a hunter good, knowing never lack of food. You shall be a warrior great, wise as fox and strong as bear. Many scalps your belt shall wear, if with patient heart you wait bravely till your task is done. Better you should starving die than that boy and squaw should cry shame upon your father's son. When next morn the sun's first rays glistened on the hemlock sprays, straight that lodge the old chief sought, and boiled saint and moose meat brought. Rise and eat, my son, he said. Lo, he found the poor boy dead. As with grief his grave they made, and his bow beside him laid, pipe, and knife, and wampum braid, on the lodge top overhead, preening smooth its breast of red and the brown coat that it wore, sat a bird, unknown before and as if with human tongue. Mourn me not, it said or some. I, a bird, am still your son, happier than if hunter fleet, or a brave, before your feet laying scalps and battle one. Friend of man, my song shall cheer lodge and cornland, hovering near, to each wigwam I shall bring tidings of the corning spring. Every child my voice shall know in the moon of melting snow, when the maple's red bud swells, and the windflower lifts its bells. As their fond companion men shall henceforth own your son, and my song shall testify that of human kin am I. Thus the Indian legend saith how, at first, the robin came with a sweeter life from death, bird for boy, and still the same. If my young friends doubt that this is the robin's genesis, not in vain is still the myth if a truth be found therewith unto gentleness belong gifts unknown to pride and wrong. Happier far than hate is praise, he who sings than he who slays. Banished from Massachusetts. 1660. On a painting by E. A. Abbey. The General Court of Massachusetts enacted October 19, 
1658, that any person or persons of the cursed sect of Quakers should, on conviction of the same, be banished, on pain of death, from the jurisdiction of the commonwealth. Over the threshold of his pleasant home set in green clearings passed the exiled friend, in simple trust, misouting not the end. Dear heart of mine, he said, the time has come to trust the Lord for shelter. One long gaze the good wife turned on each familiar thing, the lowing kine, the orchard blossoming, the open door that showed the hearth fire's blaze, and calmly answered, Yes, he will provide. Silent and slow they crossed the homestead's bound, lingering the longest by their child's grave mound. Move on, or stay and hang, the sheriff cried. They left behind them more than home or land, and set sad faces to an alien strand. Safer with winds and waves than human wrath, with ravening wolves than those whose zeal for God was cruelty to man, the exiles trod drear leagues of forest without guide or path, or launching frail boats on the uncharted sea, round storm-vexed capes, whose teeth of granite ground the waves to foam, their perilous way they wound, enduring all things so their souls were free. O oh, true confessors, shaming them who did anew the wrong their pilgrim fathers bore for you the Mayflower spread her sail once more, freighted with souls, to all that duty bid faithful as they who sought an unknown land, o'er wintry seas, from Holland's hook of sand. So from his lost home to the darkening main, bodeful of storm, stout Macy held his way, and, when the green shore blended with the gray, his poor wife moaned, Let us turn back again. Nay, woman, weak of faith, kneel down, said he, and say thy prayers, the Lord himself will steer, and led by him, nor man nor devils I fear. So the grey Southwicks, from a rainy sea, saw, far and faint, the loom of land, and gave with feeble voices thanks for friendly ground whereon to rest their weary feet, and found a peaceful deathbed in a quiet grave where, ocean-walled, and wiser than his age, the lord of shelter scorned the bigot's rage. A quidnexile, Ned took its lonely shores, an Indian haunted Narragansett saw the wayworn travelers round their campfire draw, or heard the plashing of their weary oars. And every place whereon they rested grew happier for pure and gracious womanhood, and men whose names for stainless honor stood, founders of states and rulers wise and true. The muse of history yet shall make amends to those who freedom, peace, and justice taught, beyond their dark age led the van of thought and left unforfeited the name of friends. O mother state, how foiled was thy design the gain was theirs, the loss alone was thine. The brown dwarf of Ruggen. The hint of this ballad is found in Arndt's Mirchen, Berlin, 1816. The ballad appeared first in S.T. Nicholas, whose young readers were advised, while smiling at the absurd superstition, to remember that bad companionship and evil habits, desires, and passions are more to be dreaded now than the elves and trolls who frighten the children of past ages. The pleasant isle of Ruggen looks the Baltic water o'er, to the silver-sanded beaches of the Pomeranian shore. And in the town of Rambin a little boy and maid plucked the meadow flowers together, and in the sea surf played. Alike were they in beauty if not in their degree he was the ampman's firstborn, the miller's child was she. Now of old the isle of Ruggen was full of dwarfs and trolls, the brown-faced little earthmen, the people without souls. And for every man and woman in Ruggan's island found walking in air and sunshine, a troll was underground. It chanced the little maiden, one morning, strolled away among the haunted nine hills, where the elves and goblins play. That day, 
in barley fields below, the harvesters had known of evil voices in the air, and heard the small horns blown. She came not back, the search for her in field and where was vain they cried her east, they cried her west, but she came not again. She's down among the brown dwarfs, said the dream wives wise and old, and prayers were made, and masses said, and Rambin's church bell tolled. Five years her father mourned her, and then John Dietrich said, I will find my little playmate, be she alive or dead. He watched among the nine hills, he heard the brown dwarfs sing, and saw them dance by moonlight merrily in a ring. And when their gay-robed leader tossed up his cap of red, young Dietrich caught it as it fell, and thrust it on his head. The troll came crouching at his feet, and wept for lack of it. Oh, give me back my magic cap, for your great head unfit. Nay, Dietrich said, the dwarf who throws his charmed cap away must serve its finder at his will, and for his folly pay. You stole my pretty Lisbeth, and hid her in the earth, and you shall ope the door of glass and let me lead her forth. She will not come, she's one of us, she's mine, the brown dwarf said, the day is set, the cake is baked, tomorrow we shall Wednesday. The fell fiend fetch thee, Dietrich cried, and keep thy foul tongue still. Quick, open, to thy evil world, the glass door of the hill. The dwarf obeyed, and youth and troll down, the long stairway passed, and saw in dim and sunless light a country strange and vast. Weird, rich, and wonderful, he saw the elfin underland, its palaces of precious stones, its streets of golden sand. He came unto a banquet hall with tables richly spread, where a young maiden served to him the red wine and the bread. How fair she seemed among the trolls so ugly and so wild, yet pale and very sorrowful, like one who never smiled. Her low, sweet voice, her gold-brown hair, her tender blue eyes seemed like something he had seen elsewhere or some thing he had dreamed. He looked, he clasped her in his arms, he knew the long-lost one. O Lisbeth, see thy playmate, I am the Amptman's son. She leaned her fair head on his breast, and through her sobs she spoke. Oh, take me from this evil place, and from the elfin folk, and let me tread the grass-green fields and smell the flowers again, and feel the soft wind on my cheek and hear the dropping rain. And oh, to hear the singing bird, the rustling of the tree, the lowing cows, the bleat of sheep, the voices of the sea. And oh, upon my father's knee to sit beside the door, and hear the bell of vespers ring in Rambin church once more. He kissed her cheek, he kissed her lips. The brown dwarf groaned to see, and tore his tangled hair and ground his long teeth angrily. But Dietrich said, For five long years this tender Christian maid has served you in your evil world, and well must she be paid. Haste, hither bring me precious gems, the richest in your store. Then when we pass the gate of glass, you'll take your cap once more. No choice was left the baffled troll, and murmuring, he obeyed, and filled the pockets of the youth and apron of the maid. They left the dreadful underland and passed the gate of glass. They felt the sunshine's warm caress, they trod the soft, green grass. And when, beneath, they saw the dwarf stretch up to them his brown and crooked claw-like fingers, they tossed his red cap down. Oh, never shone so bright a sun, was never sky so blue. As hand in hand they homeward walked the pleasant meadows through, and never sang the birds so sweet in Rambin's woods before, and never washed the waves so soft along the Baltic shore. And when beneath his dooryard trees the father met his child, 
the bells rung out their merriest peal, the folks with joy ran wild.